Hello, everyone. Greetings. It's still morning here, but wherever you're joining from, uh, I saw Canada, I saw Malaysia, I saw Melbourne um, and Sydney. Welcome to our service today. Uh, my name is David, as Pastor Susie mentioned. I do serve as uh, the worship pastor, but also as a media and tech pastor. Um, I also am a family pastor here. Um, but I serve primarily... Um, you probably have seen me on stage mostly as a worship pastor. Um, I'm the I'm the guy on the YouTube thumbnails that's like, like the the shouting cowboy meme. Um, so you've probably seen me in that role. And I also occasionally get to preach on Sundays. Um, and as I was preparing for the message today, um, I made a very grave and very horrible realization, and that is that I've actually never preached out of the Psalms before. And I was thinking to myself, like, how can I call myself a worship pastor and not preach out of the Psalms? What kind of worship pastor am I? Right? Uh, so to rectify for my wrongs, we'll be looking at a Psalm today. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Psalm 27. Um, let's all turn there right now. Psalm 27. And as we're turning there, uh, it's like right in the middle of the Bible. I'm going to throw out a fun fact about Psalms. Um, it's actually the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament. So not only is it the most quoted book on Instagram, but it's also the most quoted book of the Bible in the Bible. So let's turn to Psalm 27. And let's actually uh, read this together. Um, I'm going to read from the ESV, but whatever version you're reading from, let's just read from verse 1 to all the way to verse 14 together. Ready? One, two. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is God's word. Hallelujah. Psalm 27. It's a psalm that I believe is perfect for the situation that we're in right now. It's a psalm of confidence and assurance. It's a psalm also of worry and lament, and it's full of raw emotion. There are very high highs, and there are very low lows. And honestly, 
if you look at it, it's kind of all over the place. It doesn't cut corners on emotion at all. And I believe this word that David, King David, spoke 3,000 years ago, it's still the same for us today. I feel like it's a word that God is speaking to me in this season. And I believe that God, um, it's a word for everyone in this season. So let's go into it. At the beginning, David is full of confidence, right? He's saying, the Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? But the next second, in verse 7, he's, in verse 6, he's like, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away. I believe that this is a very human thing. I think that's why many people can relate to the content that's found in this psalm. Some scholars, not all scholars, but some believe that this was written during different periods of David's life because they question whether somebody can change their stance, their, their mood, so quickly in the span of a day or a week or even a month. Let me tell you guys, uh, I feel like these scholars are robots because I can definitely change quickly in a span of like a minute, right? I can go from happy to sad to mad to whatever in the, in the span of 60 seconds. So I definitely feel like this is a very human thing. As we examine this passage, as we examine the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, there are three things that spoke to me. There are three themes that came out of this passage. The first is facing fear. Second is gazing on his beauty. And the last is waiting on the Lord. Facing fear, gazing on his beauty, and waiting on the Lord. I wanted us to start off by asking this question. Let's make it interactive if you want. Um, Feel free to leave your answer in the chat. Uh, The question is, I'll give you a few seconds to think about it and answer. How do you deal with fear and anxiety? How do you deal with fear and anxiety? So just let me know one way, one way that you deal with fear and anxiety. Anyone, anyone in this room, actually, if you guys want to shout out something as well. Kieran on the chat says, process it logically. Okay. Stella says she doesn't. Yumi says, I pray. That's the right answer. I don't know if that's her answer or if that's, she's giving the right answer. Tina says, take a nap. Daisy says, I cry. Okay. So this is all... Deep breaths and a stress ball. Thank you, Stephen. Oh, yeah. Okay, so these are all different ways we address fear and anxiety, right? So for me, there are two different ways that um, I feel like we, most people, they they take an approach of dealing with fear and anxiety. The first way, someone said this already, they don't, right? They ignore it. They tune it out. They read a book, they watch a show, they look at social media, they eat a snack, right? They go exercise, do something healthy. Even, even these are good things, right? They're good things. But they, in the end, they're trying to distract us from what gives us fear and anxiety. And I'm definitely in that boat. I tend to do something else. I tend to go home and scroll. Uh, I turn my brain off. I actively ignore it, right? There's an active ignoring of our problems. Others might say, you know, I'm a very positive thinking person. I try not to think about the worst case scenarios. Instead, I spend time thinking about the positive things that could happen out of a situation. And I definitely know a few people like this. I'm not like this at all. Um, But I definitely know some people like this. And actually, if you read self-help books, they all talk about this. They say, you know what? 99% of the time when you think of the worst case scenario, it's never going to happen. So just think about the good things that could happen out of the situation. 
So instead of, the, maybe you're kind of in the middle. Instead of the worst case or the best case, you think about the realistic, realistic case that can happen, right? But what do we see here in Psalm 27? David approaches fear in a very, very different way. He doesn't distract himself. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't try to say, oh, this is nothing, right? He doesn't try to think of the best situation either or the most realistic situation. In fact, he approaches anxiety by taking it head on. He approaches fear by going actually the extra mile. He lays out every worst case scenario he can think of that can happen to him. Verse 2, when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, in the footnote it says to slander me, right? When my enemies and my foes attack me. In verse 3, though an army besiege me, when there's physical pain that could happen to me, when my life is in danger. Verse 10, though my father and mother forsake me. So these are actually the opposite of what we do. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't take the best case scenario. He actually amplifies his fears. And when I read verse 10, I actually get a little teary-eyed. Excuse me. Uh, uh, When I was reading this, um, it made me a little emotional. And as many of you know, I became a father a few months ago. It's actually his 80th day of uh, being alive today. Um, But when you become a father or a mother, I think these words, they kind of change their meaning. It's like my identity changed without me knowing it, right? And I'm a very slow processor, so it takes time for these things to hit. But when I was reading this verse, it kind of hit me. And there have been many moments in the past two and a half months that I've asked myself these two very big fears of mine. The first one is, how can I raise this child differently from how I was raised? And the second is, how can I raise this child not to be like me? Because when I look at my childhood... I won't say it's a terrible childhood. I, was, uh, I didn't grow up in poverty. I didn't have any like, very difficult hardship or anything. But being a Korean pastor's son uh, apparently is a very difficult thing to do. Again, I don't want to say that my dad was a terrible human being or anything like that. I, I love my dad. Um, and there are moments where I really felt loved by him. But Korean fathers in general, they have a hard time expressing their love for their kids, right? And... Oftentimes, as a pastor's kid or a PK, I didn't feel rejected outright, but I felt not a priority. I felt like ministry came before me. I felt like the church um, was sacrificed before my, my needs were met, right? So, in the past three months, two and a half months, there have been many moments where I've been asking that question. How can I raise my child differently from what I saw? And then the second question, how do I raise this child not to be like me? Because I see a lot of my father in myself, actually. I see a lot of my shortcomings um, that my dad did, and I see them in myself. A lot of times when I'm tired after the day, I go home. I just look at my phone for a couple hours. I watch TV for a couple hours. I eat, and then I go to sleep. It's, yeah, it's the same pattern that my dad actually did. But... That's not being fair to my son or even my wife, right? Of course, I know I'm not my father. I I know that I want to not be like my father either. But this is actually two of my biggest fears. Is my son going to be just resent, go up resenting me like my father? I I did my father. 
And will my son become just like me because of this pattern? But the sad truth is, in one way or another, I will definitely let my son down. There will probably be many moments where he won't be he won't feel accepted. He'll feel not loved. He'll feel even forsaken, right? He'll feel let down. Because the sad truth is that I'm not and I cannot be a perfect father. But the good news is, there is a perfect father. I don't have to be the perfect father because we already have one. And that's why King David is able to say, even if my father and my mother reject me, even if they forsake me, yet I will be confident. He says, when people are trying to drag my name through the mud, when people are trying to destroy me physically, when people, even my own flesh and blood reject me, the Lord will take me and he will receive me. The Lord will fight for me. The Lord will exalt my head above my enemies. See, that's the secret to facing fear. We don't simply reject it. We don't ignore it. We don't run from it. We approach it head on. We can actually even inflate it if you want to. You can say, you can think of the worst case scenario if you want to, but you then say, you know what? There's a force that's greater than you. There's a force that's more powerful than you fear. In fact, he's a person. He's an overcomer. He's a savior. He's a perfect father. Not only that, he's lovely. He's beautiful. Let's look at verse 4 again. It says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This verse, verse 4, I actually call the Susie verse because I, I believe it's one of the favorite verses of Pastor Susie. I feel like she quotes it at least 10 times a day. And I feel like I've heard her quote it many times, whether it's through K1 or even at service. Yumi agrees with me. Uh, when we look at this passage, when we actually break it down, what is David trying to say here? He's saying, oh, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. I want to... Uh, gaze upon his beauty and seek him in his temple. What do these things mean? Is he trying to say, oh, physically, I want to be there. Physically, I want to be in the temple. I want to watch the Levites sacrifice the animals. No, right? That's not what he's saying. Is he saying, I want to sleep there. I want to eat there. I want to wash myself in the basin that the sacrifices, the bronze basin that the sacrifices are washed in. No, he's not saying this, of course, right? That would be actually sacrilegious. Only the Levites are allowed to be in the temple, in the tabernacle. So what he's actually saying is, Lord, let me be in your presence. Because the tabernacle is where the presence of the Lord is. Let me dwell in your presence. Let me gaze upon your beauty face to face. Essentially he's saying, let me be intimate with you. Give me your presence so that I can know you. That's what it means to gaze upon his beauty. And there are so many layers that we see about the beauty of God just in this psalm. There are so many aspects and characteristics of God that we cannot fully comprehend or understand in this lifetime, but because David was intimate with God, he knew of God's beauty in so many different ways. I'll just lay out the ones that he mentions in this psalm. He says, The Lord is my light, which means he's my guide. He's my source of hope in darkness. The Lord is my salvation. He saves me from trouble, from evildoers, from people that are trying to attack me, my enemies. The Lord is my stronghold. 
or my refuge. He's my dwelling place. He's my safety. He gives me rest and peace. The Lord is my source of joy and my song. He gives me reasons to sing joyfully. The Lord is my perfect parent. He receives me. He knows me. He fully accepts me. The Lord is my teacher and leader. He sets me on the right path. The Lord is my confidence and strength. He shows me his goodness. You know, when my wife was pregnant, and we were about to become parents a few months ago, like four or five months ago, we got a lot of advice from people. It's, it's funny because everyone seems to have advice about how to raise a child. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. In fact, when we go on walks, we like to go on walks occasionally because it's so, our house is so small and we like to go out. Um, every Korean ajumma that approaches us has an opinion about how to raise our child. And all of them are different, right? We, one, one day we were walking on the street and we came up to this hotak, uh, this pojang uh, matcha thing, right? And we were asking, and there were two ladies there. And one of them was like, oh, you're raising your son too cold. He's, he looks really cold. You need to put a jacket on him, blah, blah, blah. The other lady was like, no, he's a son. He need, he's warm, so he needs to be more in the open. It's like everyone has an opinion, right? And I, I usually don't appreciate the stranger's opinion like the Korean Ajumas, but our friends, I, I appreciate our friends' opinion because I love them, right? I love my friends, so I want to listen to them. One of our friends, I won't name him or name them, <laughs> I don't think anyone will know, but um, he said something that kind of stuck with me. He said something along the lines of, when you pray for your son, when you pray for your child, you have to be very specific in your prayers. If you want him to be good at sports, pray that he'll be good at sports. If you want him to uh, be smart, just pray that he'll be smart, right? Actually, I think it was even more specific than that. I think he said, like, if you want him to play baseball, then then pray that he plays baseball. If you want him to have small ears, then pray that he has small ears, I think that's why it stuck with me, because it's so weird. I mean, I'm sure I would love if my child were, like, the next NFL quarterback star or whatever, and he won Wimbledon, and during the offseason, he won a Grammy, and he discovered the cure for coronavirus as a baby, and, like, all these different... Maybe throwing in, like, an Academy Award or something in there. I mean, that would be great, right? That's what all parents want. They want their parents to... Uh, they want their children to succeed. But, honestly, if I were... Being real, if I could have one prayer for my son, it would be to know the Lord. It would be to know the one and true living God. It would be to have a deep and intimate relationship with him. I mean, of course, I'd love if my son can throw the football with me and and play tennis with me and have, like, jam sessions with me and and have an intellectual conversation with me. But how much more would it be amazing if he could tell me how the Lord blessed him? Tell me how much God revealed a new thing about him that day. You know, when he's getting his Grammy Award, he could be like, "Uh, first, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Like, that's my dream right there, right? And then I'd like to thank my mom and pop for how they raised me, right? But honestly speaking, this this should be our prayer as well. God, show me more of your beauty. Lord, let me know more of your mercies. Let me know more of your righteousness and justice and discipline. That's a hard prayer, right? Let me know more of your discipline, God. But 5, 10, 20 years down the line, it's my wish that I would be able to look back and say, oh, I fell in more in love with Jesus. That I loved being in the presence of God more than any other thing. 
honestly, 30 years down the line, if you look back, how sad would it be if you said, oh, my, my relationship with God kind of stayed the same or it, it kind of petered out or whatever, right? That would be sad for any relationship. And we look, when we look at the words that King David describes um, in these verses, in, in verse um, 4, these are words that are of extended action. What does that mean, extended action? They are words that have longevity to them. They are words that take time. It's not just look at briefly or glance at for a brief moment and think about for one second, right? It's seek after, dwell Gaze, inquire. This word can mean meditate. Meditate in his temple. These are things that take time. And King David, David tells us that when we face our fear, we don't sugarcoat it, right? We don't lie about it. We don't downplay it. We, we face the real, reality of our situation. And then if for a brief moment we're looking at that fear, we take a step, step back. We refocus on the bigger reality. That the Lord is beautiful, that the Lord is good, that the Lord loves us. And we stay in this place. We stay in that place, what Alan Hood calls the beauty realm, right? We stay in that place. We no longer see fear as this massive, ginormous thing. Compared to God, it's just a small speckle, right? And we stay in that place of beauty. And if we look at the last part of the psalm, The last stanza in verse 13 and 14, it says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. In the NIV, it says, be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. The interesting thing about this psalm is, unlike many other psalms, This psalm starts with confidence. It starts with great joy, great assurance in who God is. And then it kind of wavers and falters. Other psalms, it kind of takes the opposite approach. It starts with lament. It starts with anguish. And then at the end, we see like great assurance, great confidence in who God is. For example, if you look at Psalm 22, a couple of chapters before, it's a famous psalm uh, that Jesus quoted on the cross, right? It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? This is how this psalm starts. But then it ends with, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will be bowed down before him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. So it's kind of like the opposite of what we see in Psalm 27. We see confidence, then lament and anguish. But then the last verse ends on a very different kind of note. It's kind of in between. Wait for the Lord. Take heart. Wait for the Lord. It's almost as if this psalm ends on an unanswered prayer. David was so sure of who God is. He was fearless. He had no fear. Whom shall I fear? But then his faith kept wavering and wavering. When finally he gets to the end of the psalm and he says, he has to tell himself, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Usually when you have to tell yourself something twice, it usually means that you don't believe it, right? You don't, you're having trouble doing what you're telling yourself. Oh, I can't eat this cookie. I can't eat this cookie. He says, wait for the Lord. 
wait on the Lord. If we look at what this word means, wait, there are two things that come out. First, that this period of waiting is longer than we think. Similar to gazing or dwelling, waiting here infers a long period of time. In other Psalms, the word wait is uh, paired with the word patiently. In Psalm 37, 7, it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. In Psalm 40, verse 1, it says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined and heard my cry. The second thing is that it's very easy to think that the word wait is a passive thing. Wait for the Lord by doing nothing and sitting still. I mean, sure, there are times where the Bible tells us to do that. Be still and know that I am the Lord. And... If we look at this word, though, in the Hebrew, it can mean wait for or look eagerly for. In fact, in other Psalms, the, the way that is translated is hope for, hope for. In Psalm 130, it's paired with a phrase. Uh, I'll read it for you. Psalm 131, uh, verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. This is kind of like an army context. Watchmen are people that stand on the wall, and usually they stay up all night looking out for disaster or danger, right? Or armies approaching. So my soul waits for the Lord more than these watchmen wait for the Lord. So in reality, it's not a passive waiting. It's not just sitting around doing nothing. It's one of eager anticipation. It's one of active waiting, right? The thing about parenting, I've learned a lot about parenting in the past two and a half months. There is nothing greater than waiting for your baby to fall asleep. That's like pure joy right there, right? But it's not a, a passive waiting. It's not just sitting around like praying to God. Maybe you, you do this and it'll help you. You pray to God like, oh, please let him fall asleep. No, it's, there's actually a lot you have to do in waiting for him to fall asleep. I have to like put him on my shoulder. I have to do the little shh. Pat him on his back. I have to, like, rock up and down. Like, these are all things I have to do while waiting for him to fall asleep, right? So this is a very active kind of waiting. And this story, this, um, this kind of active waiting, we, we see in a different part of the Bible. It's in Matthew 25. We see ten different bridesmaids. Five were known as wise. Five were foolish. The five wise ones, they got oil for their lamps because they were waiting for the, groom's, uh, the groom. But five were foolish, and they didn't get any oil for their lamps. And while they were waiting for the groom to come, they got tired. They fell asleep. Around midnight, the groom was finally approaching, and the announcement was made. Oh, the groom is approaching. Prepare, right? The five foolish ones, they were like, oh, shoot, we didn't get any oil. Let's ask the five wise ones for oil. But the five wise ones said, we can't share this oil with you because we might run out by the time the bridegroom comes. So the five foolish ones, they go out of the party, pretty much, out of the feast. And they go to get oil, but as they are coming back, they find the doors that are closed. They find doors that are closed, and they say, let us in, Lord, let us in. But what's the answer that the groom gives? I don't know you. Who are you? So in this story, we see this kind of active waiting done by these wise bridesmaids, right? They prepared They anticipated the coming of the Lord. So the question is, is our waiting prepared? Is our waiting 
eager? Is our waiting anticipatory? Or are there things distracting us from being prepared? You know, in this season of social distancing and COVID-19, I think a lot of us, not the majority of us, um, have one thing more than we used to, and that is time. I believe that many of us have a lot of time on our hands. There are many lulls in our life. There are many pockets of time where there's nothing to do, right? And we have so many choices of what to fill it with. We have different options. We have media. We have Facebook. We have Instagram. We have TikTok. We have uh, Netflix. All these things, right? So many things to fill our time with. And there's actually not enough time in the day to see everything and to do everything. But will that ultimately be worth it at the end of this season? Will scrolling through endless amounts of Instagram, will catching up uh, with whatever people are doing, what the latest fad is, right? The new new home challenge, whatever, right? Is that going to be worth it at the end of this season? On the other side, there are a few of us, maybe we're facing giants. Maybe we're facing fear. Maybe we're facing anxiety. Maybe you've been laid off. You don't know where your next paycheck is going to come from. Maybe you're a medical worker and you see the threat of infection and fear of death every day. Maybe even you have a relative or someone that you know personally that has been infected. Now, whether you're, in, whether you're facing immense pressure, whether you're facing immense stress and fear, or you're facing the opposite, whether you're facing boredom and waiting, Psalm 27 tells us this, the remedy is the same. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Dwell in His presence. Gaze on his beauty. It's the only thing that will give us true rest and true peace. It's the only place that will find true hope. And ultimately, it comes down to what we love. What do you love? You see, without love, seeking, gazing, dwelling, waiting patiently, enduring, all these things, they become a chore. In fact, they, become, they can become moralistic. They can turn, quickly turn into bitterness that we can throw into people's faces. You know how long I waited for you? You know how, long I, how much I had to endure for you? If you don't love someone, you don't want to do these things. You don't want to wait for them. You don't want to be gracious to them. But if you truly love someone, you'll want to be with them. You'll want to find out more about them. You'll want to seek them out. You'll want to wait for them. You'll be willing to endure for them. And another thing is you'll want to know what they want. That's why David says, teach me your way, O Lord. Tim Keller says this. He says this about marriage. He says 95% of marriages, the time you spent 95% of the time is you trying to figure out what the other person wants. Because in any marriage, let's say, okay, the beauty of marriage is that at the end of the day, you, you have someone's arms to fall into. That's an assured thing, right? You promise that you'll love them. And you, you get to experience their beauty, right? Every single day. I, I get to fall into the arms of my wife every day, and she does the same to me, right? But at the end of the day, if she asks me, hey, can you do the dishes? Hey, can you? I'd like it if you did this for me. And I'm like, you know what? I, that's too inconvenient for me. I don't want to wait that long. I don't want to do this because it's too even too much of an inconvenience for me, then 
your marriage is not going to work out, okay? 95% of marriages is saying, oh, I love you so much, so I'll do this for you. I want to know what you want. I want to do what you want to do. That's not to say that you're giving up everything, your will, right? It's, it's a relationship that takes work. But this is also the example that we see in the gospel. We see a God that loves so much. He gave his only son. We see a son that left his heavenly throne to seek us out. To endure the humiliation of the cross. Waiting for the salvation of the father. Only to be forsaken by him so that we might be received. We have a Lord that overcame the grave and promised to be with us to the end. We have a Holy Spirit that comforts us and empowers us. One thing I want to mention before I close is fear and anxiety, they're, they're not simple things that we can just say like, oh, this is the, the perfect answer for. Every, every situation, every even mental illness, all these things are not simple answers. Um, but I do believe that God is the only one that can deal with these things. I do believe that God can step in where you feel no hope. He's a God of light, not of darkness. He's a God of hope, not of hopelessness. Whether you're dealing with fear and anxiety, whether you're dealing with depression, whether you're dealing with um, any kind of illness, mental illness, bipolar disease, I believe that God can step into your situation. When I was in college, um, I, I feel like I've mentioned this before, but when I was in college, I, I was all about getting married. I wanted to marry the person, uh, the first person that I was dating, right, whatever. And I went through many relationships like this. I put all my hope, all my eggs in one basket. And when those relationships ended, my world was crushed. And I fell into this very, very deep depression. And there were days where I wouldn't do anything except for order a pizza and eat it smoke a pack of cigarettes, and then go to sleep for like 16 hours. And it was a very dark place that I was in, but what got me through were people, connecting with people. So if you're going through a time like that, my, my encouragement to you is that you would reach out. Find help. I mean, this past year, we went through a lot of messed up things as a church, and a lot of people in our church community went through counseling. And honestly, it helped a lot. It revealed a lot of things in ourselves, but there are only certain things that God can highlight, that God can touch and fix and heal. And the best way for us to do that is to focus on who he is. As I close, I'm going to call Pastor John up. I want us to do this practice right now. I want us to really focus on who he is. Whether you're in that season of waiting whether you're in that season of fear, whether you're in a season of darkness or joy, I want us to remind ourselves of who God is. I'm going to read that list again that I read earlier. And as I read this list, um, I want us to really think about the moments where God stepped in and think about your own testimony. David says, the Lord is my light. He's my guide. He's my source of hope in darkness. The Lord is my salvation. He saves me from trouble. He saves my life. He saves me when people are slandering against me. 
when lies are spouted against me, right? The Lord is my stronghold. He's my refuge. He's my dwelling place. He gives me protection, rest, and peace. The Lord is my source of joy and my song. He gives me reasons to sing joyfully. The Lord is my perfect parent. He receives me, He knows me, and fully accepts me. The Lord is my teacher and leader. He sets me on a right path. The Lord is my confidence and strength. He shows me His goodness. Maybe there's one or two of those things that stuck out to you. The Lord is my light. Even in this deep depression, God, you take me out of the pit. You set me on a rock, God. God, you're my salvation. Even in this time of trouble where I face the reality of death and infection, God, you saved me from this. And as Pastor John leads us in this last song, my prayer for us today is that truly that we would fall more and deeply in love with Jesus, more and more in love with the Lord, that He will truly be our one thing, that our orientation would be towards Him. That's what repentance is. I pray that if we can take one step today, it would be reorienting our lives towards God again. Or maybe if you haven't made that step, maybe if you're hearing the gospel message for the first time, my prayer for you is that you can truly make that step and say, God, I want you to be my one thing. I want you to step into this situation and change it. Make Him your one thing. It's not going to be, maybe it could change for you in a day. Maybe it could change for you in a matter of minutes or moments. But it's a lifetime of reorienting, returning to Him. As Pastor John said last week, it's a lifetime of repentance. Make Him your one thing. You'll be able to face any giant, any fear, any army, any slander, any rejection, any waiting. Let's sing together.